Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Yeshua said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wine skins, and no one after drinking old wine wants new, because he says the old is better. Well, I've had a great week. Uh, I felt better this past week than I have probably in six months. And so I'm praising Yahweh for that. Um, all glory and honor to the Most High Heavenly Father, and I did have everybody agree in prayer for me last week, and I'm thankful for the people that pray for me. And so I'm feeling really good. Um, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Amen? <laughs> and so uh, I don't just say that because it sounds good. I say it because I mean it, and I'm very, very thankful. So it's been a while since we've studied in the Gospel according to Luke, and that's what I'm going to be getting back into, Luke 5, 6, and 7. We're going to finish out Luke chapter 5 today, and then as I teach um, every other week or maybe sometimes weeks in a row, we're going to go through the 6th and 7th chapters of the Gospel according to St. Luke. Um, we're going to climb back into it and pick up where we left off. The last time that we were in Luke, we read about a banquet that was held at Levi's house. Levi was one of the disciples of our Master and Savior. And we read about this in Luke 5, 29-32, where it says, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. There was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Yeshua replied to them, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I covered this, the meaning of this text in detail in the last lesson that I taught through Luke. But let me say here that the Pharisees and the scribes that were complaining here believed themselves to be healthy. They believed that they were right. They believed that they were okay. They didn't believe that they needed a doctor. They did not consider themselves to be in need of a physician. And it is extremely difficult to help a person who refuses to admit that they are sick. It's just like trying to explain something to a person who feels that they already have it all figured out. And this was the problem with the Pharisees. And Yeshua's point is that the tax collectors and the sinners are sick and they know that they're sick. And they're willing to admit that they're sick. People like Zacchaeus, who admitted that he was sick spiritually and in need 
of Yeshua the great physician. And so therefore the Messiah can help them because they knowingly admit their sickness. And it's easy to doctor someone who knows they are ill and wants to be healed because they want you to help them. And when we admit that we're sick, Yeshua can and He will heal us. But when we refuse to admit that we have problems and need help, our self-righteousness gets in the way. Now that's Luke 5, 29-32 in a nutshell. I taught on that in more detail in the last lesson through Luke. But it brings us to our text today in Luke 5, 33-39. And I want to begin at verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Now, verse 33 appears to go right in line with the story we just read in 29 through 32. And what I mean is that this question that was posed to our Messiah in verse 33 appears to have been asked him at the banquet that was held at Levi's house. When we read Luke's gospel, it would cause us to lean in the direction of seeing the Pharisees and the scribes as asking him the question. Notice verse 30 here. But the Pharisees and scribes were complaining to his, that is Yeshua's, disciples. And then you have verse 33, Then they said to him, to Yeshua, and that sounds to me like it's the Pharisees that are asking the question about fasting, when you read in Luke's Gospel. But I want us to remember that there are other authors in the Bible that record this same account, specifically Matthew and Mark. I've taught before that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means you see with the same eye, you see with the same vision. And the reason that they're called that is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke often record the same accounts in their respective books. So we read about this account not just from Dr. Luke, but we also read about it from Matthew and from Mark. So when we go to Matthew and Mark, it sheds possibly further light on Luke's account. Never forget that when you read the Gospels, you should not just read them vertically, that is, in just one Gospel, but you read them horizontally from Gospel to Gospel. For example, in Matthew 9.14, we read, Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? I want you to notice how clear it is here in Matthew's Gospel that it's John's disciples that ask the question to Yeshua. It's very clear here. There's no debate at all. Now look at Mark 2, verse 18. And it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Here we are just told that there were people that came and asked him the question. And so we have Matthew that says, John's disciples... We have Mark that says people, and we have Luke that just simply says they. And there are always people that try to be a skeptic of the Bible, and they do not allow the Bible to be treated even as other ancient literature in that regard. But people who are skeptics of the Bible would read things like this, and they would say that there's a contradiction between the authors of Scripture. And if you study the alleged contradictions, quote-unquote, in the Bible, you'll find that the large majority of those alleged contradictions are very easily explained by two things, context and authorship. There's a few that are difficult. There's a few that may be 
more difficult to harmonize, I believe that you can with the help of Yahweh's Spirit, but most are easy to understand. This one is very easy to understand. If we ask ourselves, is it they as in Luke's Gospel, or people as in Mark's Gospel, or John's disciples as in Matthew's Gospel, which one is it? Well, I want to spend a little bit of time, I have spent a little bit of time here to teach a principle of Bible study that's going to help you greatly. And it doesn't just pertain to the message today. It pertains to your Bible study in general. And I guess it kind of falls on the heels of Brother Tim's great lesson last week. Always let the clear verses interpret the less clear verses. Always let the clear verses interpret the less clear verses. Don't allow a text that can be understood more than one way to trump a text that can only be understood one way. It's a very important principle of Bible study. Let the clear interpret the unclear. So what's the clear text here? Well, it's obviously Matthew's account. Matthew tells us that John's disciples were the ones who asked or stated this to Yeshua. John's disciples can be referred to as they or as people, so there shouldn't be a problem. Shouldn't be a problem at all. We might wonder why John's disciples would refer to themselves as John's disciples rather than just we, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that a people group would refer to themselves in certain instances in the third person. And so they come up to him and they refer to themselves as John's disciples in the third person. So my point here is very simple, but yet it's profound and it will help you greatly. Both the they in Luke's account and the people in Mark's account, those are general. But Matthew specifically mentions that it was John's disciples that came to Yeshua. And therefore we do well to interpret the less clear in light of the more clear. Always remember this when you study. It helps greatly because if you have 100 verses that say one thing, and then you have three over here that do not seem to line up, the worst thing that you could do, and what so many people I've seen do, is they take those three and trump the 100. They ignore the 100 clear and take the three that maybe could be understood in more than one way. What you should do is not ignore the three, but interpret the three in light of the 100. The 100 are your basis. They are your foundation. They are your hitching post, as we say in the South, right? Interpret the three in light of the 100. That is a great way to study the Bible. So let's move on. The issue here in context is that John's disciples, his students or his pupils, because by the way, that's what disciple means, a student or a pupil, one who learns. John's disciples fast often, frequently. And they say prayers. And prayers here, I take that as particular prayers when they're on their fasts. And those of the Pharisees do the same. <clears throat> those of the Pharisees refers to the disciples or the pupils of the Pharisees. But the text tells us that Yeshua's disciples, the pupils under him, his students, they eat and drink. They don't do like the disciples of the Pharisees and of John. And this means that they do not fast often like the other disciples. Why is that? Why did Yeshua's disciples not fast often like John's and the, and the Pharisees' disciples? Well, first off, I want you to notice something that we might not catch. 
because people have turned fasting into many things. People go on a juice fast. People fast from television. People fast from social media. And I'm not saying that these things aren't good. I think that a lot of times they can be good. But the biblical meaning of fasting is to go without eating or to go without eating or drinking. That is biblical fasting. The Greek word here for fast is nestuo, which literally means no eating. That's what the word means. And to go on a fast biblically means that you abstain from eating, from putting food into your body. Or sometimes holy men of old would abstain from eating and drinking, from putting water or anything liquid into your body. That is not only obvious from the Greek word nestuo here, but it's obvious from the context. These people fast often, but on the flip side, your disciples eat and drink. See that? It's opposite. These fast often, these eat and drink. We know that fasting was a big part of the Hebrew faith. There was a commanded yearly fast on the Day of Atonement or the Day of Covering. It's even called the fast in shorthand in Acts 27 verse 9. There are also many instances where followers of Yahweh would fast when they would be mourning or in hopes of getting the attention of Yahweh for a severe situation. Like when Queen Esther, or Esther, I guess she would be queen at that time, Queen Esther called a three-day fast before she went into the king uninvited. Why did she call a three-day fast? Well, she wanted to draw close and get the help of the Almighty. And so therefore, fasting removed her out of the way, feeding her flesh, and allowed her to be able to be sensitive more to the Spirit. David fasted when he sinned with Bathsheba, and he hoped that his son, through Bathsheba, would live. He fasted to try to get Yahweh's attention. And we know that the son died. But yet David knew that fasting was important. And so why didn't Yeshua's disciples fast often? It's a big part of the Hebrew faith. Why did they not fast often? Well, we should not assume that Yeshua's disciples never fasted. They most certainly would have fasted on the Day of Atonement. It was a commandment. So they would have fasted then. But according to this text... They did not fast often like the other students or disciples of other people. Look at verses 34 through 35. Yeshua said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Yeshua teaches them here through an analogy. That's this. Do wedding guests fast while at the wedding feast in the presence of the groom. Well, when is the last time that you went to a wedding where they didn't have food or drink? That wouldn't be much of a wedding if you ask me, right? It would be a poor wedding in my opinion, and evidently in Yeshua's opinion too. Weddings are for rejoicing, for mirth, for dance, eating, drinking, happiness. In verse 34, Yeshua is likening himself to the groom. He is the groom at the wedding. And in other words, he's saying, I'm the groom, and my first coming, my being here right now on earth, is like being at a wedding for my disciples. They're the wedding guests. They're with me. I'm the man of the hour. It's like a wedding for them. It's not a time of mourning. It's not a time of weeping. It's a time of rejoicing. Therefore, they don't fast often while they're with me at the wedding. Verse 35, Yeshua goes on to say that there will come a time when the groom, that's him, 
will be taken away and then they, his disciples, will fast. Some people believe that Yeshua is talking of his death here when he says he will be taken away. I do believe that that was an extremely sad time when he died. But I lean more towards that Yeshua is speaking of him leaving the earth and going to be with his father. The groom, that is Yeshua, is taken away to heaven sometime after his resurrection, according to the book of Acts. And there, the groom, Yeshua, he has been for about 2,000 years, roughly. Now, it's in this time frame that the students are the pupils of Yeshua fast, the immediate disciples and also those of us that follow in Yeshua's footsteps. That's where our mind and covenant lies with. The groom is not with us. We aren't at the wedding because he's not here. This text, brothers and sisters, this text leads me in the direction of believing that we should fast often. Yeshua never rebukes John's disciples or the disciples of the Pharisees for their often fasting. He never rebukes them for that. He only explains the absence of it by his disciples because he, the groom, was right there with them. And now that the groom is gone, his disciples should fast often, just like the others that were fasting often. That's his point. And fasting is so important. Sometimes you meet people and you think that there was a verse in the Bible that said fasting has been done away with. You know, you ask them, well, how often or when's the last time you fasted? And they have to think back. And I've asked some brothers and sisters in the Messiah, in Yahweh, and they say, well, probably last day of atonement. Well, that's a commanded fast, but we should be fasting more than just on the day of atonement. Fasting is good for your spiritual man, not to mention the health benefits, the physical benefits from fasting, but the most important biblical reason is for your spiritual person so that you draw closer to Yahweh. Now, I do not speak this trying to say that you have more salvation if you fast, but you will be keeping your fleshly nature in check more often that you fast. Fasting, when done by a believer, makes you more sensitive to the Spirit of Yahweh. The longer you go on a fast, it makes you more sensitive to the Spirit of Yahweh. The longer you fast, the more you feel like praying to Yahweh. The longer you fast, the more you are sensitive to the needs of other people in the congregation or other people in the world. And you are sympathetic with the trials and the tests and the tribulations that they're going through. All of these things, if you've never been on a long fast, all of these things are true. They will happen to you when you fast off or when you fast for a lengthy period of time. I can speak for myself here because I get more tender to others' feelings when I fast. It's easier for me to cry and to pray when I fast and to pray for others and with others when I fast. The longer I fast, the more often I find myself weeping over the areas of my life where I struggle with sin and I find myself wanting to reach out and help other people. All of these things happen when you fast oft. For the genuine believer, fasting draws you more close to Yahweh. And therefore, we should be about the habit of abstaining from food and drink often, not just on the Day of Atonement. A good practice would be fast one day a week. If you can go, can go two days a week, that would be great as well. There is an ancient Christian document known as the Didache, and that word Didache simply means teaching. And it refers to the teaching of the twelve apostles. 
It's believed to be a Christian manual that was compiled before 300 A.D. that some early Christians in the early centuries A.D. actually believed to be inspired. And regardless of its inspiration, it does at the very least show that some early Christians did indeed fast two days a week. For instance, in chapter 8, under the heading Fasting and Prayer, it reads like this, But let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, rather fast on the fourth day and the preparation. I want you to notice that they're not calling these days in this ancient Christian document, they're not calling these days Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc., etc. They're calling them by their numbers, which is how Yahweh called them in Genesis 1. By their numbers, day one, day two, day three. Okay? I think, I'm not sure about this because this is all that's said, but I think that the Didache here, when the Christians are referring to the hypocrites, possibly they could be referring to the Pharisees and their disciples. Because we do know, according to Luke chapter 18, that when the Pharisee prayed thus to himself, he wanted to remind Yahweh that he fasted two times a week. There's nothing wrong with fasting twice a week, but... You don't have to get all self-righteous and think that Yahweh needs to be reminded. He knows. He sees. He sees our humility. Now, I'm not saying to treat fasting like you would taking a pill. If you think that that it's like that, then you have it all wrong. It's not that you take a pill or get your hand stamped or get some kind of a spiritual shot or something like that. But I am saying that Yeshua said that once He, the groom, was taken away, and that means taken to heaven... His disciples, obviously His immediate disciples, but in another sense, any student of Yeshua, which we should be, we all would fast more often once the groom is taken away because we're no longer at the wedding. Now when He comes back, it will be even a greater wedding than it was at His first coming. And then it won't apply. But while He's gone and we're not at the wedding, we should be fasting often. Let's move on next to verses 36 through 38. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. But new wine should be put into fresh wine skins. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Yeshua said these words right here after the conversation about fasting and not fasting, and he being the symbolic groom of the wedding. Now, I believe that it's undeniable that this parable that we just read, as it's called by Luke, notice Luke calls it a parable, this parable has something to do or is associated with what comes directly before it. But far too often, this is not how I see it explained. If a parable comes right after another account of Yeshua giving a teaching or saying something, you would think that it would have something to do with what He just said. And you would think that the exegetes or the scholars of Scripture would interpret it in context of what Yeshua has just said about the fasting. But I cannot tell you how many times I've heard these verses, Luke 5, 36-38, quoted, and then somebody says something like this. Well, that means... You can't put the new covenant inside the old wineskins of the old covenant. Or Moses is the old garment, but Yeshua, He brings in the new garment. And don't take those old wineskins of the law and try to put the fresh gospel into the law. 
And boy, they can make it sound good too. They can make it sound good. And I may vent here just for a little bit because I get upset sometimes when I think about these things. One of my pet peeves is when I hear preachers try to come up with sermons where they take a text and then they make some kind of rhyme or cliche out of that text that was never intended. And then everybody claps as though there's been some spiritual esoteric meaning that has come out of their words. You've heard them all say, you know, I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? And everybody shouts and claps and everything like that. Listen, that, there's no exegesis involved there. Um, just because something rhymes doesn't mean that it's correct. And we need to remember that, okay? I'm not against necessarily making something rhyme. I write songs that rhyme all the time. And I just rhymed when I said that, right? Rhymed all the time. My point is, is that I absolutely loathe hearing a sermon where that's all it's done. It's like people think, or pastors or preachers think, that if they make something sound good and it gives everybody chill bumps, they preach the good sermon. But then you ask them after the sermon, what did he preach about? And they say, well, I don't know, but I know I felt the Spirit. I don't know what he preached about, though. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you that the Bible says, not Brother Matthew, the Bible says that by good words and fair speeches, the hearts of the simple can be deceived. Romans 16, verse 18. And part of my job description as a pastor is to help you understand Scripture better so you will not be easily convinced by a man who claims to speak for the Lord yet twists the Scriptures to his own destruction. Let me tell you something. These verses, Luke 5, 36-38, they have zero nil to do with abolishing the law. They have zero to do with Yeshua coming to give this kind of new law or a better way than Yahweh laid out in His perfect law. Listen, you cannot add to perfection. Yahweh's law is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7, you cannot add to perfection. And if Yeshua is the Word made flesh or the law made flesh and John 1, 14 tells us that He is, then He is the embodiment of perfection. He's like taking that perfect law and morphing it into a human being. And therefore, when He walks, you're seeing the law of Yahweh in action. And that's why He did it to perfection and never sinned, not one time. He's not giving anything better than what Yahweh has always given. He's only performing to the greatest capacity the perfect law that Yahweh has already given. Listen, Yeshua did not come to teach a new faith. He did not come to take us away from the faith of the Old Covenant or the Tanakh. He came to relieve us from all of the layers and layers of tradition and doctrines of men that people had placed upon the perfect law of Yahweh and to get us back to the purity and the old paths and the truth of Yahweh's law as it stood in its origin, as it stood in its, in its bare... when Yahweh created it, how it was intended to be. Hallelujah. And let me say this, and this is not in my notes, but the spirit of the law doesn't contradict the letter of the law. Uh, people say, well, I, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that because it's the spirit of the law. Listen. The spirit of the law means the intention of the law. What is the intent of that law? It doesn't mean that you break the law and then you call yourself spiritual and you're going by the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is the intention of the law. The letter of the law says, do not lay with your neighbor's wife. The spirit of the law says, don't even look at her. The lust after her in your heart. The spirit doesn't contradict the letter. It shows you the intention of the letter. He doesn't want us desiring our neighbor's wife. The letter of the law says, do not murder. The spirit of the law says, don't hate your brother in your heart. Because murder 
always begins by somebody thinking about it before they act out on it. The spirit of the law, do not hate, doesn't contradict the letter of the law. They harmonize. They go hand in hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So let me tell you this. Don't let, never let anyone quote this about the new and the old garment or the new wine and the old wineskins and then rip it out of its context and say that there's some kind of new law that Yeshua replaced the old worn out law of Yahweh with. Listen, Yahweh's law doesn't wear out, brothers and sisters. It never gets old. Hallelujah. Praise Almighty Yahweh. So let's look at it. I believe it's so simple that people glance over it. I'm not going to share with you now some kind of great, high, heavenly thing going on here. It's very simple what he's saying. But I want to take time to go through it so that you won't be deceived by some kind of good words or fair speeches. Um, as Romans 16:18 says. First off, Luke says that he's giving them a parable. The Greek word is parabole, and that's defined as a symbolic, fictitious narrative of common life conveying a moral adage. A parable is a story of fiction, or either something in natural life that helps to explain a point in more detail. So let's look at the parable. The parable says this, None of us would tear a patch from a brand new pair of pants and put that patch on a five-year-old pair of pants. Otherwise, we will only, we will not only destroy the new pair of pants, but the piece from the new pair of pants will not match the old piece. That's the Jansen Standard Version right there. And then in verse 37, he tells them that no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Because if you do, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will spill out, and the old wineskins will be ruined. But you put new wine into fresh wineskins. And let me explain that just for a second here. Wineskins were generally made back then from sheep or goat skin. And the neck area of the animal would be used as the neck of the container that you would drink out of or pour out of. While the body area of the animal would be used as what held the contents. The animal would be skinned, the hair would be removed, and the hide would be treated or tanned so that the flavor of the grape juice that was first placed into the skin wouldn't be tainted from the smell of the hide. And after some time, a wine skin will become worn out. It will become brittle and breakable. The areas that had been sewn together would not hold as well as they first did. And the expansion quality of the skin will be over with. And this is important. Because as you put in that fresh grape juice, and there's that yeast dust there on the outside of the grape skin, the juice will begin to ferment almost immediately. And as the juice would ferment, the skin would expand. And if you put new wine, that is fresh juice that had to undergo that potent fermentation process, if you put that into an old wine skin, the skin was worn out, old and brittle, and thus when it tried to expand, it wouldn't. It would crack, it would split open, and it would spill the wine, thus you couldn't drink it, and it would ruin the skin. And this is why Yeshua says in verse 38 that new wine should be put into fresh or new wineskins. They're not worn out. They will expand as the juice ferments. The wine will not be spilled and the skin will not be ruined. And then Yeshua adds that one clause at the end in verse 39 where he says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new 
because he says the old is better. Now his simple point here in verse 39 is that there is better quality, smoothness, and taste in the old wine. If you're accustomed to the old wine and someone tries to slip in some new wine on you, there will be a noticeably different sour taste and quality in the new wine. And Yeshua is saying here that the person will say, give me back the old wine. Now these are very simple. They're not hard to understand concepts. They're very simple natural concepts that Yeshua mentions to further explain what he shared about him being the groom and his disciples being the the wedding guest. Remember, this parable that he gives about the new and old garment and the new wineskin and the old wineskin comes right on the heels about what he said about the fasting and the groom and the wedding guest. Remember, his disciples didn't fast often while Yeshua was with them because it was like them being at a wedding. People don't fast at weddings. They eat and they drink freely. And what I believe Yeshua is saying here is this. This is his point. For my disciples to fast while I, the groom, is with them is just as strange or weird as tearing a piece from a new garment to sew on the old garment and putting new wine into old wineskins. Brothers and sisters, that makes sense. It fits the context. We don't have to make up anything. We just stay with the flow of thought. Same with verse 39 about the old wine being better. He's saying that as long as he's with the disciples, they must do what is best at that time. And that is not mourn, but rejoice, because the groom is there. Rejoicing while he is with them as the groom, that's like drinking that good old wine instead of the new. And they stick with what is best for them. And what is best for them while they are at the wedding is not to fast often. Now, some may say, well, Brother Matthew, that seems just way too simple. But I would say that most people make these verses too complicated. Rest assured, there are complicated texts in Scripture, but I don't think that this is one of them. And I don't think that we need to make something up about the new law and the old law when we come to this new wine and old wine and new wine skin and old wine skin. I think it's utterly ridiculous, if you want me to be honest. And as a student of Yahweh's Word... And as a man who wants to lift up the flag or the banner of Holy Scripture and not detract from its integrity, let's not allow anybody to try and rip this text or any other text in the Bible from its original context and make Yeshua say something that he never intended to say. So I hope this was a blessing to you. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Almighty Yahweh, thank you so much for your love. Father, and I thank you for a good understanding. I thank you for uh, the gospel according to St. Luke. And I'm privileged to be able to teach on it again this week. Father, might you bring us back here next Sabbath. I pray that we would enjoy the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread as we eat this unleavened bread for seven days. And remember that exodus from Egypt. Father, bring us back here next Sabbath to rejoice, to sing. And Father Yahweh, I, I pray, I pray that your children's hearts would be pricked uh, to fasting more. I really think that there's going to be some things open up in the spiritual realm if we make that decision. I really think that, that you're going to see that we're taking things serious. 
and that there's going to be some bonds broken. I'm already seeing it happen. Uh, Yahweh Father, I pray that you would uh, not let me or anyone else lose faith. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for a good Passover. Through your son we pray. Amen.